Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to episode 10 of X-Lapsed. Uh, it's weird, we're in the double digits now, which, uh, for a project that kind of started by accident, is a uh, pretty cool thing, I think. Uh, I haven't really talked about, uh, you know, starting this show, um, and, I, and I promised myself I wouldn't go too deep into, you know, the personal anecdote territory on this program, uh, save that for other things. Uh, but, uh, this uh, whole show, I figure for the 10th episode here, I could talk a little bit about how it came together. And uh, it was uh, during a, uh, a current, <laughs> still ongoing, uh, reorganization effort uh, for my uh, collection. If you follow me on uh, any social media, you'll probably see the uh, the painful process. Uh, I've been taking pictures of, my, uh, of the progress or lack of progress. And uh, somehow, you know... I'm in a situation where I'm buying more and more long boxes, but I'm somehow finding ways to stick less and less books in them. So the mess I had a week ago is, it looks even worse today somehow. Um, now, when I get my uh, my new books, I, I get an order from a DCBS, Discount Comic Book Service, uh, who, uh, they're not sponsoring the show, but if uh, if they'd like to, uh, I'm, I'm for sale. Um, they, uh, I get their packages every month, and what I usually do would uh, be I log the books I get into my Excel spreadsheet, and I just pile them. You know, they, they go into a pile, and they're usually left in a room somewhere, and I eventually file them away. I, I very seldom read these new books, but with the uh, these Dawn of X books, I made special effort to set them aside, you know, with this idea that I would eventually get to them, and... Uh, like all the DC stuff and all the random stuff I get, that's just in a pile. But these these Dawn of X books, I would pull them out of the pile. I'd put them in actual number order. I would have them in a separate stack um, on my nightstand where, you know, nightstand reads are something that uh, I think a lot of comic fans are uh, very familiar with. And uh, the varying levels of success getting through those is uh, is something that I think might be universal among among the readership. So, I kept seeing this pile of X-Books, this pristine pile that's all in, you know, beautiful order, and it's got this wonderful art, and, you know, semi-familiar characters on the covers, and uh, every time I would see it, I I want to, you know, stop everything and, uh, you know, dive in, you know, actually do it, and do it the right way, not just skim, not just, uh, not just get through them just to have them under my belt. You know, and be like, okay, I read that. I actually want to do experience these. And so during this latest reorganization effort, I kept coming across this pile of the Dawn of X books. And I even went so far as to, like, do a little short film of me flipping through them all and asking if anybody knows the reading order. And and yes, you know, the, the Dawn of X books have a reading order in them, but there's also, like, a wiki about it, and then there's also other sites about it that have all sorts of contradictory reading orders. So I was hoping to get like a consensus. And I was thinking that, you know, maybe I'll, you know, I'll get, I'll start getting through these. And uh, the way I initially planned to do it was going to be, you know, I do it, I do maintain a daily blog over at chrisoninfiniteearth.com. And uh, I was just going to put little uh, blurbs, I guess, or capsule reviews. Uh, Right now I'm covering, you know, I'm covering anthologies over there right now. I'm looking at, like, New Talent Showcase from DC. I'm looking at uh, Marvel Comics Presents. I'm looking at some silly Bizarro stories. Uh, And I figured I would end each of my daily posts with 
a capsule review to, to sort of track my progress through uh, the Dawn of X. And, uh, and I thought more and more about it, and I figured, hey, you know, it's going to be a little hard to send people to if, if anybody was even interested in what my thoughts were in the first place, or even if I, down the line, wanted to, like, revisit my thoughts, I'd have to dig and dig and dig through uh, a whole bunch of different blog posts. And if I didn't do it every day, I'd get lost, and I'd have to find a way to, like, sort of mark these. And, I mean, we're talking about as of this recording, like nearly a hundred books. So, I mean, that's a lot of books. So I thought, you know, maybe there's a different way to do this. And, uh, and I told myself if I could design a, like a, a trade dress for this and make it into a project, I'll, you know, I'll do a show about it. Um, I, I, one of the things that, one of my biggest challenges when it comes to making shows is, uh, the design element to make something that's sort of striking, or at least identifies what I'm talking about. Um, I've recently gone through the uh, Cosmic Treadmill archives, and I've, you know, kind of refigured and reformatted um, the, like, the thumbnail or the cover art, I guess you could say, for each episode, just to make them look like they're part of a family of shows. And what I have is, it's fairly basic. Um... It's just a couple of banners, a little, little, you know, speech balloon with a number in it. It's just a way so I can identify, or maybe people at a glance would realize, oh, okay, that's that's a Chris and Reggie show, you know. So I went about trying to design this uh, X-lapsed uh, deal, and uh, I think it's what pushed me to actually do it, is that I was so happy <laughs> with how it came out. I mean, it's not much to look at, but um, but for someone like me who's kind of a neophyte when it comes to design, I, I thought it came out uh, much better than it had any right to. Um, I was cutting and pasting letters from you know various things that I found online. I I, I found the Krakoan alphabet that I played around with and uh, had a lot of fun. Um, taught myself how to use like sepia tones in in the GIMP program. <laughs> so, I mean, all very basic stuff. But for someone like me, it's a uh, it's a chore. But uh, from there, I, I was just so happy with the way that the, you know, the cover art looked that I decided, okay, I'll, I'll record an episode. And uh, after recording that first episode, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do this once a week. You know, I'll do this once a week and uh, we'll get through this by, you know, 2023. But uh, the next day I was inspired to do it again and then again and again and again. So... Um, I've been enjoying this a lot. This has been a very fun project up to this point. Um, a lot less, uh, of the emotional and mental shiatsu as a Chris's on Infinite Earths episode. So, uh, it's, it's been fun. And, uh, the reception has been, has been unexpected and, uh, and wonderful. And folks reaching out and, uh, letting me be part of this conversation has been just, uh, amazing. It's, uh, I'm... I'm an awkward fella. I, I don't think I have much to offer uh, anywhere <laughs> in any sort of conversation. So the fact that people are letting me into the conversation, um, if only to listen to my weird predictions here on the show or to reach out and actually talk to me about stuff and, and compare our, uh, you know, our predictions of the day, uh, it's, it's meant the world to me. It's been, it's been so fun, so great, and uh, I look forward to uh, so much more. But with that out of the way, let's get into our uh, third-to-last issue of Hoxpox here. Now, this is Powers of X number 5, had a November 2019 cover date. It's named after uh, probably my fourth favorite New Kids on the Block song, For the Children. Writer, Jonathan Hickman. Art, R.B. Silva. Colors, Marty Gracia. Letters, V.C.'s Clayton Cowles. Design, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White-Sabulski. Five dollars. Uh, release date, September 25th, 2019. And uh, before we get into it, let's look at the cover here. Mr. Sinister's here, and this is the one I've been waiting for because uh, this fueled one of my hot take predictions here because uh, I remember seeing Sinister on a cover, and I figured he hasn't shown up yet, so maybe he's going to be a, you know, a reveal or a big ta-da. So uh, if we look a little bit closer here, look at that. He's uh, stood before what looked to be a group of uh, hatchlings, so... Hmm, maybe that uh, hot take wasn't so hot. Maybe that uh, is about to pay off. But uh, whatever the case, I wonder. Really, really wonder what Sinister is going to be getting himself up to in this very issue. 
We open her up, and after our requisite mostly blank quote page and double page uh, spread of credits, we open in X to the Zero, X-Men Year One, and we're in Dallas, Texas. Charles is meeting with Forge to discuss some tweaking he'd like to do with the Cerebro helmet. Now, this is, of course, referring to giving it the ability to, the, to copy mutant minds. Now, Forge is initially dubious, not regarding, you know, Xavier's motivation or machinations or anything, just to the fact that it's something that uh, may not be feasibly done, you know. This seems like a very heady, no pun intended, sort of a deal. Xavier gives him this hypothetical. He's like, hey, you know, everything you need will be made available, and there'll be no limits to any aspect of this production, you know, regarding energy, uh, storage. Hypothetically speaking, you have everything you need, and there are no limits. Forge is intrigued. Worth noting, we learn here that this would be the third generation of Cerebro, and by now, at least the original five have joined the X-Men, because uh, the professor does say that Hank McCoy was who he first approached uh, to get thoughts on this sort of concept, and Beast gave it the big thumbs down. Forge does some thinking, uh, thinking out loud, actually, discussing potential redundancies that may result from this endeavor. You know, things like having to update each individual mutant mind... Also, maybe some forward-thinking wisdom here, having a separate backup version of this entire database system somewhere safe, you know, somewhere off-site. Xavier says, another one. Actually, with a, a smugger-than-usual look on his face, he reveals that he wants five systems total. He wants the one main unit, three backups, and then an additional, an, an additional one as sort of a, you know, in-case-of-emergency-break-glass sort of thing. Now, Forge takes a swig of something hard and realizes that his night is about to get much longer. We learn that the process will be facilitated by a Shi'ar antimatter engine that is currently cloaked within Earth's orbit. Forge mulls it over a bit before ultimately deciding that he's all in. Now, from here, we get an info page regarding Cerebro. And it looks like that we're currently up to version 7.0, so I'm guessing we have, like, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth at this point. Uh, we learn that, while it originally ran off Shi'ar technology, it now runs off of a Krakoan power source. The data is still so stored on Shi'ar logic diamonds, though, which uh, is probably the sort of thing that Wolverine in the year 100 era jammed into Mora the Ninth's chest when filling her in on the origin of Nimrod. Now, as far as functionality is concerned, Xavier copies the latest version of every mutant once a week. And, and we learned about that last time uh, during the resurrection scene. But... Some new information follows, and that is, once a year, Xavier does a, quote, hard backup, which isn't just an update, isn't just a refresh, but this is a whole new hard copy of every mutant. And this takes three whole days, during which Xavier cannot be disturbed. So this is some uh, pretty heavy stuff. We get a reminder that they've never put a mind in the wrong husk, which, uh, I mean, it really makes me think that that's where we're headed here, though. That might be the point of it. It might, it might be there for people like me who, who look for these things, so it might just be a red herring. Uh, finally, we find out that Xavier has dialed back his own mind to previous versions twice already. Makes me wonder what bits of uh, mental data might have gotten purged in the process, and it also makes me wonder what the point of it might have been. Um, could this have removed the corruption of, you know, Onslaught? I mean, not that it would change the actual event, just because he forgot about it, um, but maybe... I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe this was just an exercise to see if it could be done, right? You know, I mean, it's it's interesting either way. Uh, the professor is, you know, playing with this, uh, this novel and uh, amazing tech, so maybe he was just uh, seeing the limitations, or testing his own limitations. Uh, we find out that the five cradle locations for Cerebro are revealed as... House of X, Island M, Summer House, The Point, and Mora's No Place. Now, the House of X, I'm guessing that's on Krakoa. Island M is, uh, I want to say, Magneto's Bermuda Triangle uh, Island. Don't know what Summer House is, not sure what The Point is, uh, but I think Mora's No Place is where we saw her in, you know, stasis uh, during the year 100. So that's it may stand to reason that that's just somewhere that exists throughout all times? Maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. I could have sworn that I heard them refer to it as no place uh, when Wolverine went through that uh, Krakoan gateway uh, in the 100 era. But back to the story. 
We are in X to the first, so year 10, and we're at the Louvre. Emma Frost has been summoned here by Xavier and Magneto to chat about the future. You know, putting together the mutant homeland. Initially, Emma finds this to be a rather quaint idea, and uh, it's also one that she's not keen on going in on. She's like, haven't we tried this before? And uh, she'd be right, several times. She cites the genocide at Genosha as reason enough why they probably shouldn't cram every single mutant together in one place. Uh, you know, saying it's more or less putting a giant target on their entire group. Xavier presses the issue anyway. He reveals that he'd like the aid of the Hellfire Corporation in order to market that Krakoan miracle drug that we learned about way back in House of X number one, and really haven't heard all that much more about since. Now, of course, these are the ones that would extend human life for like five years, also heal mental illnesses. I don't remember what the third one is, but it's a, you know, it is a miracle drug. It's a, something that would help humanity if it were, uh, if it were, you know, legit and real, and it very well might be. Emma still isn't quite sold, and so the fellows continue. They sweeten the deal by asking her assistance in establishing the mutant government for the nation of Krakoa. She feels like this whole thing might be, you know, putting the cart before the horse, maybe a little premature. First, this government and nation are predicated on selling their unseen weirdo miracle drug to the nations of the planet who, you know, hate and fear their kind. So, uh, you know, maybe not, uh... Maybe we don't have the most solid of footing here. Now, Magneto and Xavier, they, they kind of let her spout off the mouth for a bit. She, they let her get all of her doubts out. And when she stops, she realizes by the look on their faces that these two are actually serious about this plan here. They're, they're not just, uh, this isn't just pie-in-the-sky stuff to them. She wants to know what could possibly be different about Krakoa when compared to past mutant settlements and, you know, of course, their tragic ends. And so they take her there. It doesn't take her long to be convinced. She's suddenly all in. But wants more details regarding the corporate shell game that Xavier's looking for here. Now, you see, this whole miracle drug gimmick is part of a consortium of companies that Xavier secretly owns. Since their drug comes straight from Krakoa, you know, the plants and whatnot, it doesn't fall under any sort of American jurisdiction regarding, you know, anti-monopolistic business practices or something like that. Now, the distribution would be left exclusively to Hellfire, and Emma likes what she hears. And so they enter into a 50-year exclusivity deal right then and there. Now, as part of the agreement, or the arrangement, Xavier still wants Emma's input on the Krakoan government, and he offers her two seats at the table of power. One for her, the other for Sebastian Shaw. Emma is not pleased. She claims she just got rid of him, so she's finally got control of Hellfire, and uh, would you know the last thing she wants to do is bring this guy back. And I'm not sure if or when this story actually took place, uh, because I want to say the last time I saw Sebastian show up was during that horrible Young X-Men book about ten years ago. That was a bad book. Oof. Still bought it and read it, but oof. Not good times. Uh, Xavier explains the need. You know, for having... Why do we need Sebastian Shaw back? Well, you see, Emma's going to be the public face of the Hellfire Corporation. You know, the legitimate side. Shaw will run the black book side of things. So his whole deal is he's going to be getting drugs into nations that choose not to do business with Krakoa. That's a pretty smart plan. Xavier asks if this is something she can do, to which she reveals, Sure, I can do it, but now she's going to need three seats at the table of power here. And so, uh, what is this Table of Power? Let's learn a little bit more about it. Uh, this is the Quiet Council of Krakoa. It's depicted via an info page as a round table with 12 seats of power. Now, these 12 are broken up into, like, four quarters. They're, they're named after seasons, and uh, each of these have three seats apiece. Uh, Cypher and Krakoa itself are listed as being present, however, they don't have seats at the table, so maybe they're just there to uh, translate and, uh, and you know, address the island itself. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Now, the first set of seats we got is uh, labeled Autumn. Seat 1 is Professor X. Seat 2 is Magneto. Seat 3 is Unknown. Winter, seats 4 through 6 are all unknown. Spring, seat 7 is Sebastian Shaw. Seat 8 is Emma Frost. Seat 9 is unknown. Summer. Seats uh, 10 through 12 are all unknown, though, I mean, with a name like Summer, uh, <laughs> I might make some guesses as to who might be seated here. Uh, though, again, I could be wrong. 
From here, we go back to the summoning scene from House of X number 5. Uh, last episode, we discussed that, where all the, you know, formerly evil mutants arrive on Krakoa. You know, the Krakoa is for everybody bit. Xavier calls out to all the mutants of Earth to come to Krakoa, and uh, boy, do that. We get to see a few of the personal invites here, or maybe just a, an illustration of what the, the summoning actually looked like to individual uh, people or groups. We see Exodus and the Acolytes. So Xavier invites them. We also have Mr. Sinister standing atop a whole bunch of uh, Sinister clones that may or may not be dead. Um, Omega Red and his crew, uh, and Gorgon, who... I, I'm not sure who Gorgon is. <laughs> I think I might have missed a, uh, you know, a half-decade of Wolverine stories where maybe they made their appearance, or maybe this is a Hickman character. I don't know. Now then, we follow Xavier to Atlantis, where he invites Namor to Krakoa. And uh, I love this scene. Um, Namor's intrigued, but he senses that Professor X isn't quite as resolute in his mission here. Namor is more about supremacy, and he views Xavier's mission as being maybe a little half-hearted in that regard. He tells Xavier, it's like, hey, good plan, but come back when you really mean it. Uh, this is just wonderful, Namor. Um, and if I'm remembering right, uh, before Secret Wars 2015, Hickman did a really great run on New Avengers that I'd completely forgotten about really enjoying. And that one featured uh, villains. It featured uh, villains and, and Namor in a pretty big way. And I think that might have been the only thing about that run I genuinely liked at the time. I thought the Namor there was just so badass, so awesome. Uh, might have been the best Namor I've ever read. So really cool stuff. Uh, about me only liking that, <laughs> when I think about his uh, Hickman's Avengers run, I may have been a bit thrown off my Marvel game here. Because it felt like every issue was full of incessant threats that we were headed toward a New 52-style reboot. I mean, even to where we were like counting down to the end on the cover of every damn book. Oof, those were a few unenjoyable years of Marvel fandom for me. Or actually, comics fandom in general for me. Because you just felt like you couldn't invest in anything because... Um, I don't know, the industry was more about the short-term gain at that point. It's like, hey... We'll, we'll flush 70 years of continuity if we could beat the other company in the in the Diamond Top 100 for two months. It's, ugh, garbage. Um, from here, hold on to your hats. We're headed back to X to the third. X cubed, the year 1000. Oh, man. Okay. So, the boring phalanx agree to the boring elder about his boring plan for ascension or whatever. Uh, the phalanx kiss the elder on the forehead, which kills him. He dies. Um, later, the librarian and Nimrod the Greater discuss what had just gone down. Nimrod suggests that the Phalanx answer to, uh, like, world minds or something, and this is... This is the sort of stuff I was not looking forward to here. Though, in fairness, I was, uh... I was expecting, like, most of this to be full of, like, theoretical physics and, and cool, like, smart-sounding concepts, but, uh, I'm glad we're sticking it all to this one little bit of this, because uh, otherwise, oof, oof. Uh, Titan theory comes up again, which I think the Mother Mold was spouting on about before colliding with the sun back in, uh, you know, current year or, is, or year 10. Um, something about black holes being like a supermassive machine brain consisting of collective intelligence of a society that became so advanced that it collapsed on itself. <sighs> okay. <clears throat> Let's try to parse that so even I can figure out a way to work with it. Um, I'm telling you, I'm I'm working on a, a postmaster psychology degree right now, my third degree in in, in psychology, and I and I, this is just way over my head. Uh, we've got we've got a black hole mention right now. That immediately, you know, putting on my comic book hat and not my my faux sophisticate hat uh, makes me think of Zorn. Though it seems like they sort of vacillate between there being a black hole in his head and a sun, so maybe it's a maybe it's a black hole now, or maybe it has nothing to do with anything. Also, society—that's been something of a buzzword over the last couple of chapters. Uh, the last chapter was even called society. So, what I would posit, suggest, guess is that maybe this is a foretelling that the society we've been watching grow in Krakoa will ultimately collapse on itself. Maybe I'm taking that too literally. Uh, maybe there's something to it. You know, we're getting uh, 
we're getting, you know, talk of uh, machinery and a and a humanity of sorts becoming too advanced, maybe for their own good. And we started this issue with Professor X, you know, trying to advance Cerebro, and we're getting into all this really heavy stuff where. I mean, we're, we're, we're orchestrating a society. We're not, societies, I mean, they, they kind of, and I, I don't have any sort of, uh, you know, basis for this outside of the theoretical and uh, my own hot take here, but like societies just sort of happen, right? Where Xavier is sort of forcing and orchestrating a society. We saw, you know, Storm do her, her weird culty mass last issue where it's like everything felt very orchestrated. So I wonder if that might be what we're getting at here. Like, is is the stuff that, that Nimrod talking about here, is this a reflection on what happens in the present or close to the present uh, as far as this book's concerned? Maybe I'm taking it too literally. Maybe there's something to it. I guess... Uh, you know, that remains to be seen. We will uh, we will find out as we continue. And so, we're going to get to the Phalanx. They've taken Earth up on its offer, and uh, their whole gimmick is that they convert matter into energy. So, if I'm reading this right, and I very well might not be, because A, I am extraordinarily dense, and B, I am extraordinarily bored, it looks as though we wrap this chapter up with the Phalanx actually consuming the Earth. Um, our last comics panel features Nimrod the Greater saying that there'll be no living thing left behind. I don't know if that's conjecture, just talk, or if that's actually what's happening here. Because we've seen a lot of imagery of the Phalanx taking things over. I don't know how much of that is just imagery and how much of that is uh, literal. Like we're actually seeing something that's happening right then and there. Now, we wrap up with an info page regarding different types of universal societies, and I've tried. I've gotten a running start. I've tried getting through this page many times over the past day and a half, and I, I, I just can't do it. This is some really dull stuff. It really pulls me out of the story, and honestly, I couldn't care less. Uh, we've got two parts left. We have two issues, and um. And I'm pretty sure that there isn't a whole heck of a lot that Hickman to do to bring me around to this bit. And as I've been making sure to say, as I've been reading this, the things that I don't like, that's not any fault of the creators or the story. This is just my personal taste as a comic fan. There are just certain things, certain subjects, certain concepts that I don't like. Um, this feels a little too satisfied with itself, which turns me off a bit. Uh, if this is your thing, then, you know, more power of X to you, uh, because, uh, yeah, this isn't, this isn't my favorite bit, but that's the issue. Let's talk about it first. And this is silly, but, uh, what was the point of having Mr. Sinister on the cover? <laughs> I mean, I know covers are basically meaningless these days. They have been rendered so unimportant, but this one's especially strange because, uh, I mean, is it a red herring? Is it, is it purposely directed at people like me who, uh, who think the story is going to go a certain way when it isn't? Is this a peek into the future? Um, or am I wasting, you know, brain cells thinking about, uh, thinking too hard about something that won't matter in the slightest? You know, seeing him before the, the hatchlings here, I mean, that, when I, cause I didn't even notice that the first time I saw the cover. And when I looked at it today or yesterday, when I, when I read this, it was just like, oh, wait a minute, you know, maybe, maybe that's something. And it still very well might be. But then again, it might not be. I guess we'll find out. Or I'll find out. You guys already know, probably. Um, I like seeing Forge used here in the process of upgrading the Cerebro helmet. Um, I find it always cool to see some how some of the, like, ancillary players are being slotted into, like, relevancy here. Um... Now, I'd be lying if uh, I said my distrust of Xavier didn't peak just a little bit here. Part of me wonders if Forge might have been given, I don't know, maybe a little psychic shove from the Professor uh, to come around to his plan. Though I'm probably just reaching here. I've had similar thoughts with Emma uh, at the Louvre, where she was not too sure about doing this. And then a trip to uh, Krakoa later, and, and she's uh, she's on board. I, 
it makes me worry, or not worry, but wonder. Like, is Xavier giving us a giving these characters a little nudge in the the right direction for him? Um, the info page regarding Cerebro, I'd I'd file that or slot that under one of the good ones because it was helpful in delivering the information in a concise way, the most concise way. Uh, because uh, to do this in sequential art would have been probably uh, wasteful, <laughs> a lot of pages. Um, though uh, they're really pushing this concept about putting the wrong mind in the wrong husk here. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, you know the don't cross the streams warning from Ghostbusters. You know, it's it's like we learn that that's a thing, and then all of a sudden they have to do it. You know, uh, I, I wonder if that's if that's what we're getting here, where it's like. Whatever you do, don't put the wrong body, uh, wrong mind in the wrong body. And I was like, well, hey, we got to put the wrong mind in the wrong body. I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Emma joining up with Krakoa was uh, also very well done. Got a lot of moving parts here with the, you know, the corporation and the the miracle drug and the the you know the United Nations and you know drug running and getting the mutants over to to Krakoa. A lot of moving moving parts, but I feel like it was told in a very easy to follow uh, sort of way. I, I appreciated Emma's trepidation and concern. I liked her uh, citing, you know, past failures uh, as it pertains to mutant societies and isolating the uh, the mutants all in one place. Um, into the corporate bit here, I really liked the idea that Emma would be the public face uh, of, you know, the Hellfire miracle drug distribution, while the Black King would be the black market, infiltrating nations that aren't keen to work a trade deal with the mutants. Um... Very well done. Very well done. And, uh, I mean, that's Xavier being a little dishonest, right? Uh, this is him putting together something that he can sort of deny. He's got a deniability there. It's it's pretty cool. I also enjoyed Emma and Magneto's brief negotiation bit. You know, Magneto was like, eh, we'll sign you up for 20 years. And she's like, nope, that ain't good enough. So uh, that felt good. That felt true to both characters, and I, and I really liked that. Uh, the 12 Seats of Power. I like this idea as well. Not sure. I'm not a very uh, literate guy, so I don't know if this is a reference to something. Maybe the Knights of the Round Table? Um, which, I mean, we have a story called X of Swords coming up. Maybe that'll play into this. Who knows? I couldn't tell you one way or the other. Just what comes to mind. Um, I feel like this is an info page that we would also slot under good. Um... Though part of me worries we're going to be seeing it a lot, maybe with just a name or two added each revisit, uh, which, I mean, that's that feels to me like a waste of pages. Though, I have absolutely no reason to believe that we're going to get that. It's just something I'm worried about. Uh, we are getting close to the end, so, I mean, maybe they won't waste pages on something like that. Maybe we'll just see it one more time with all the seats revealed, or maybe we won't, won't even see it, it again at all. Now, the summoning was pretty cool. Not sure it required two pages of Xavier summoning some of the same folks we saw come through the Krakoan Gateway last chapter, but, you know, what are you going to do? At least it led to the to the scene with Namor, which I, I very much appreciated. I thought that was really cool. Outside of that awful Illuminati stuff, I don't think we see Namor and Xavier together very often, so that, it was pretty neat to see. Um, I, I also like that, uh, that Namor is thinking that even this huge step for, you know, mutantum isn't quite far enough, or is doesn't have its whole heart in it. I thought that's pretty cool. Um, from that to something I didn't love, <laughs> it was X-Cubed, uh, the year 1000. Uh, I'm hesitant to use the phrase head up its own ass, <laughs> but, oh man, I did not like this bit. Uh, this was a tough read. Um, and for like the half dozen or so pages that it actually ran... I definitely spent most of my time reading and rereading this bit. Um, just an attempt to A, get myself to care, and B, wrap my head around it. And uh, I'm here to report I failed in both regards. Um, you know, you want to give me info pages? Just condense everything from X Cubed into a few paragraphs that maybe a five year old could understand. From there, then translate that into how that five year old would explain it to their two year old sibling, and then maybe, maybe I'd get it. Then again, maybe not. Now, I'm hoping that this was a literal uh, ending for X-Cubed here, and this is the end of it. Uh, it sure looked like the phalanx was absorbing or ascending the Earth in that second-to-last panel there, and I, I really hope that's the case. Um, though I wouldn't wager either way. 
Um, I'm just not feeling it. I really, if we could just excise the uh, the 1,000 stuff out of here, I, I I think I'd be. Oh man, I would love this series so much more than I do. And, and I mean, at, at the end of the day, here, despite any complaints I have about uh, the year 1,000, and despite any sort of complaints I might have had concerning info pages. This issue, I come away from it thinking, you know, definitely a net positive. Um, we get more world building and also contextualizing things here. Uh, we're really, I mean, we're getting to see how the sausage was made, right? We're seeing, we were dropped in this year 10. We're on Krakoa. All these mutants are there. How did we get there? Professor X is wearing the Cerebro helmet. Why is he doing that? We're getting that here. And it's being done in a very engaging way. Learning about Cerebro, learning about the Hellfire Corporation, revisiting the miracle drug that has only gotten very passing mention in this story so far, unless unless I'm glazing over panels, which is a possibility. But uh, I'm pretty sure the last we heard about that was in the first issue, back in House of X uh, number one. But uh, I could be wrong. But I mean, it's all good. It's all good stuff here. It's tying things together. And it's doing it in a very satisfying way that also is leaving me with a lot of questions. And, you know, comparing this to other current year comics, these are questions I actually want to see answered. Where a lot of times we're left with questions that I could care less if they ever get answered. Or or I hope they don't get answered because I know I'm only going to be let down. Here, I'm looking forward to seeing where we go. Got two chapters left. And honestly, I, I can't wait. Now, before we cut out of here for today, I do want to uh, read a little bit of feedback gotten. Uh, first from our pal Matt Rose, who says, Loving the X-Lapse shows, they really take me back to the excitement I felt last summer and all the speculation my friends and I discussed weekly. Good fun and great read. Thanks for the content. Well, thank you for listening and joining me on this uh, little journey here. Uh, and it actually reminds me of a like a side effect that I hadn't considered when I started this project. Um... Uh, how, you know, while I wasn't part of the speculative discussion last year, there are folks that definitely were. Um, which makes me wonder if some of their predictions were as wild as mine have been. Um, I would, you know, I would do a Google search, but I'm still afraid of being spoiled. <laughs> because I am still waiting for, you know, that third shoe to drop, as I mentioned last episode. I'm waiting for something else, because things seem a little too easy and a little too perfect right now, so... I am waiting for the the big aha, you know. Um, but thank you, Matt. Again, thanks again, and I look forward to hearing more of your thoughts as we uh, as we continue our way through this. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, next, now I think I can pronounce this right now because because uh, he sent me the way to pronounce it. I am still a marble marble mouthed New Yorker, so we will do our best. Damien Drouet Whiter, Drew Drouet. Yes, I think so. Uh, It's French, and uh, (laughs) we'll find out. Um, He says, I should probably start with the pronunciation of my name if you're going to read it out on the air. It's Drouet Wider. You got very close. The French bit confuses lots of people, and yes, it confused me as well. He goes on to say, another enjoyable podcast. I'm surprised how much I notice in your recaps, but missed when they're reading and rereading the book. Bar Sinister is made of ruby crystal. Of course it is, as Sinister is always associated with the Summers family. I hadn't noticed that. I just saw it as a fantastical lair, and, uh... You know, that's funny, because I hadn't put the two and two together either when it comes to ruby and ruby quartz. So that's <laughs> that's pretty wild. Uh, so yeah, that's just part of the fun of talking about these issues. Um, when I saw it, um, and then when I read the Sinister Secrets bit about the red shoes... I, I thought the whole thing was like an analog to the Wizard of Oz. It's like, okay, well, it's the the Ruby City and uh, Ruby Slippers. And I didn't even think of Ruby Quartz, which just tells you that I am looking for the forest. I'm looking past the trees for the forest or, or whatever the way you, you actually say that, uh, that statement. Uh, he goes on to say, I think the idea of there being multiple Sinisters goes back to the Kieran Gillen run. I think the characterization of, of the Sinisters as petulant is a reference to Claremont's original plan that Sinister is created by a child. The idea of a supervillain with the personality of a toddler is terrifying. And I tell you what, I remember being absolutely blown away when I first came across those original plans for Sinister, like probably mid to late 90s on Usenet. Um, 
Now, if I'm remembering right, uh, this was a mutant child who lived in the orphanage where uh, where Scott Summers was after, you know, jumping out of the plane and everything. And this child uh, created Sinister to torment Scott um, just as a figment, uh, which would explain the silly name, you know, Mr. Sinister. That sounds pretty dumb. <laughs> so it's a silly name and also, you know, a silly-ish kind of boogeyman appearance. You know, what's a, what's a scary dude? Well, it's Mr. Sinister would be a scary dude to a kid. And, uh, man, I was blown away when I, when I first read that on Usenet. And it's like, it was almost such a good idea that I didn't believe it was real. You know, <laughs> like it was a concept. And it's really fun to consider what could have been. And, I mean, you never know. It might, it may be revealed as being that way somewhere down the line. We just don't know. He said, he continued, Damien goes on to say, the sinister secrets were great, secrets were great fun. Your interpretations were interesting. I have seen the suggestion that the Red Shoes prophecy is a reference to a coloring error in X-Men number 94, which would explain how Sinister got Thunderbird's DNA, so people are going deep. And that is wild. Uh, I just looked, I, before I recorded here, I took a look at that, and yeah, for all but one panel, Thunderbird's got blue boots, and then in one, they're red. So, uh, <laughs> I love that idea. Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Um... That not only for the fact that they're, I mean, they're playing with the lore here and they're making it work, but also, I mean, it shows me that that Hickman did the work. You know, he, uh, if this is true, of course, you know, he read past things where I'm, you can't convince me that a lot of the people who have done X-Men over the past 15 years have read an X-Men comic before they started writing it because they were just so <laughs> uninspired. I mean... If you were to tell me that the first issue of X-Men that Brian Bendis read was the first issue that he wrote, I'd believe you. Uh, where Hickman, he's pulling the lore, he's pulling the history, he's respecting the lore and the history. I'll hand it to him. Uh, this is He's doing the work, which I respect uh, very, very much. Back to the message here. Damien says, Your mentioning of Doug's arm in the Krakoan section immediately made me think of an unnoticed connection between the far-flung future and now. The librarian is preparing for the phalanx, but in Doug's arm, it's already on Krakoa. That's got to be a thread for a future story, and that is true. I still don't care about the far future, but uh, that is a true fact. That is... Uh, and, and it's... I mean, I don't remember... I thought Warlock was back to life as his own thing, so maybe it is an illusion. Maybe it's... Maybe we're truncating bits and pieces. I, I don't know. Um, by the way, the Krakoa in the Jean Grey school was described as a baby Krakoa, presumably a child of this Krakoa, but I'm not sure how that relates. And yeah, that makes sense, because I do remember it being like a cuter Krakoa in Wolverine and the X-Men, so I guess it stands to reason that it is just a, a wee baby Krakoa. I wonder if they'll play with the concept that Krakoa can replicate. You know, going forward, um, its origin states that it'll never be whole, but it doesn't rule out replication, right? Or maybe the baby will just uh, never be referenced again. <laughs> that kind of happens in comics. Uh, he continues, or concludes actually, with, I probably should have said why I gave up on Dawn of X. There are so many unanswered questions at the end of House of X, Powers of X, that I desperately want to see explored, and they're just ignored. And with Empire and X of Swords, it feels like it was falling into the old trap of crossovers overtaking the books. Yeah. Now, uh, it doesn't exactly light a fire under me, <laughs> but uh, uh, your point is certainly well taken here. Uh, this is far, far too common a thing in current year comics. You know, uh, think about so many events and so many reboots and so many relaunches, and uh, we kick off and we work our way through events, and it leaves us wanting so much more, you know, because that's just the way comics are told now. Events don't really wrap up. Events lead to the next events. And with Marvel, a lot of the times, this the next event is already either solicited or coming out before the previous event wraps up. Uh, you know, officially. It's, uh, I mean, event of fatigue is a real thing, for sure. So, we finish an event, we want more, but then all the stuff we loved gets backburnered and then either forgotten about, contradicted, ignored. 
the uh, the thing I always cite when I think about this method of storytelling is uh, is DC Universe Rebirth, right? I mean, we ended with the revelation that uh, you know the Watchman, the Commuting's button was in the Batcave, and oh boy, the speculation and the excitement and so much promise, you know, that this was going to deliver and so many ideas to explore. Um, but rather than doing that, we tread water for years. Years on end. Or worse yet, we get stuck waiting through, like, filler. You know, it's like... They promised, and, and this is, you know, Rebirth. We had the story of the button. You know, the Flash Batman uh, four-parter, I think, where... Oh, we're going to get our answers. And it came out like a year later. So, oh, we're finally going to get our answers. And then halfway during the publication of that, they decided they wanted to do, doom, to do Doomsday Clock. And they pushed back the last part for like a month. And then that got truncated so we can announce Doomsday Clock. And they're not going to reveal the answers here. They're going to reveal them in Doomsday Clock in six months, which is going to take a year to, ta- to, to come out, which actually took like two and a half years to come out because Jeff Johns couldn't be bothered to do it. I mean... Oh, God, awful, awful stuff. And uh, then we get Justice League No Justice to fill the time. We get metal. We get all these events that have nothing to do with what we actually wanted to see happen. Just there to fill time because they couldn't deliver. And I, you know, hearing uh, Damien's concerns here makes me a little little worried that, I mean, what might happen here? Um... I'm not sure what questions I'm going to have coming coming out of this. Uh, we'll we'll discuss that in a couple of episodes when uh, when we finish this up. But uh, I am interested to see how many questions I'm going to want answered and how many of those will actually get answered, if any, um, as we move forward. It is unfortunately just a way of doing business. Um, if you've heard me complain about Marvel storytelling, and uh, you, if you've listened to this show, you might have heard me complain about current year Marvel uh, storytelling and, and just their their method. Um, it always feels like to me, we get this big reboot, we get four or five excellent issues, but by the time the fifth issue comes out, sales have dropped down below where they were before the reboot, so they announce the next reboot, but that's not coming for six months, so we get six more issues of nothing. Right, And then we get the reboot, we get a new number one, a new status quo, Uh, sales go, relatively speaking, through the roof, we get three or four really good issues, really, you know, we're heading in the right direction, we're heading in a direction, I should say, good, bad, or indifferent, we're heading somewhere, there's there's oomph, movement, Um, but then by the time that fourth or fifth issue comes out, sales drop down below where they were before the reboot, Marvel announces the next reboot, so we get five or six issues of nothing, happens over and over and over again. Which was kind of what I was trepidatious about before I kind of, you know, devoted myself to reading this story. Um, it's uh, so far so good, in as far as we're actually getting into double-digit numbers here, <laughs> which is a feat unto itself at Marvel these days. But uh, I do worry that uh, they might not see the return that they're hoping for, and before we know it, who knows? I mean, something can happen and we could be right back to the drawing board. So it's, uh, who knows? Uh, now, um, if I put myself into the shoes of someone who, you know, stuck around, right? You're waiting for that shoe to drop here. You're waiting for those questions to be answered. And they, they draw it out and all your anticipation does is grow, right? Uh, but... More often than not, you're going to be underwhelmed and disappointed, right? That you waited so long. And then putting myself myself into the shoes of Damien here, who, who didn't stick around, he's already gone. And when he finds out that the follow-up or the answers are half-hearted and not worth waiting for, maybe he won't come back. You know, maybe he won't come back to find out. I guess, you know, it all remains to be seen. So much is up in the air right now. The, the industry is just in a very, very strange place recovering from uh you know everything that's gone on this year so gotta keep optimistic which is uncharacteristic for me when discussing current year books but uh i'm having so much fun i'm hoping that things you know keep going the way that they're going um now i'm I'm not entirely sure what empire is i don't know if that's leading to any sort of a reboot i'm sure there'll be a slew of number ones coming out of it i just hope that none of them have an x in the title uh i i think you know that's a whole hog marvel event the x-men are 
tying in. I, I know I have a handful of books with Empire branding on them, but uh, I mean, at this point, I probably won't be getting around to those till like Christmas, so <laughs> we won't worry about them just yet. It'll just be uh, you know horribly dated when I start talking about Empire. People will be like, ah, we read that a hundred years ago. What are you talking about? But. That'll do it for Damien's letter. Thank you so much for writing in. I really appreciate you being a part of this, uh, part of this crazy little journey. And um, you know, maybe when I get into the Dawn of X books, uh, maybe some of the stuff we talk about will inspire you to come back, or or maybe it'll just validate your opinion in walking away for a bit. Um, let's hop to another opinion, and actually a contrasting opinion here. Our our pal Dallas Gibson. He says, I feel the need to champion the Dawn of X books. Since I'm trade reading, he, he did share that he is reading the anthologies that are coming out, uh, which I cannot help but love that idea so, so much, because it makes it so easy for people to stay on top of it. Uh, he says he's only through issue seven or so of all the books, and if he was buying the monthly, issue by issue, four of six would still be on his pull list. So he would have only dropped two of them. And he says that's a pretty great ratio, which, you know, that uh, that brightens my mood a little bit. <laughs> it makes me feel a little less worried here. Um, hopefully, by the time we get to the you know sixth or seventh issue of the books, we're still we're still loving life. You know, we're still digging this, and uh, we're still excited for what's to come. Um, so thank you, Dallas. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I appreciate any and all feedback, good, bad, and different. Um, I just like being part of the conversation, and I can finally be. Part of the conversation, although in a sort of retro sort of way, since I still got a long way to go <laughs> to catch up. But uh, thank you all so much for uh, listening, for engaging, for you know making me feel like this is a this is something that people are enjoying because uh, I'm enjoying it, and uh, it's it's great that uh, that there are folks out there that this is reaching, and it, maybe it's reminding you of how you felt when you read this. Maybe it's inspiring you to read it for the first time. So. Uh, I, I just think that's the coolest thing in the world. But uh, if you'd like to reach out, you could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or at Ace Comics on Twitter. You can find me over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com where there is a uh, you know post for every single show. And uh, it might be getting a subdomain pretty soon. I haven't decided yet if I want to do that, but uh, that might make it easier for folks to, to catch up all in one place without having to parse their way through you know, reviews of New Talent Showcase and Marvel Comics Presents on the site. So we'll see how that goes. Um, if it happens, I, I will certainly announce it. Uh, we're in the home stretch here for Hoxpox. Got the last issue of both headed our way. And um, don't know about you, but I can't wait. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for hanging out. And I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh